And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. It's wonderful to be here with each of you tonight. And I'm thrilled to introduce Brooke Pernice. Brooke has a zest for life, uh, a beautiful optimistic outlook that is catching, wisdom beyond her years, and talent as a musician and a teacher. Allison and I, um, as moms of two blind boys, had the pleasure of connecting with Brooke based on her lived experience with blindness. But we came away from that conversation with much more than pointers. Brooke truly opened my eyes to what it means to live and thrive with blindness. And I no longer look at what my son can't do, but what he can do. With no further ado, I turn it over to Brooke. Thank you so much, Stacy, And it is uh, so good to uh, be here. I want to say uh, congratulations uh, to you all and what you're doing um, with Bless, with Best, with uh, Blind uh, Early Services uh, Tennessee. I think that is meeting such an important need. And I am so delighted to be a part of this, particularly at such an early stage. Uh, my name is Brooke Pernice, and uh, I'm blind since birth. I was born with a condition called Labor's congenital amaurosis. And if you're wondering how to spell that, I, I can't remember right now. Labor, Labor's is L-E-B-E-R-S. And then the rest of it, uh, you can figure it out. But I am a, a graduate of Belmont. So it's actually how I got connected with Allison and Stacy, uh, one of my dear friends at Belmont has uh, worked with them is, is a uh, music therapist. And so I completed undergraduate work there. I completed graduate work at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. I worked there for a couple of years as a, uh, an associate minister of music, youth, and faith formation at a church, and uh, just recently have moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I work as a teacher and a curriculum writer at a classical Christian school called Sayers Classical Academy. I, I am a classical educator, and so much of what I say tonight it may strike you as downright old-fashioned. And I make no apologies for that, because I think many of the principles that have helped us throughout history, throughout thousands of years, uh, truly can speak to our own situations of blindness. And I wanna start tonight with one of those. Maybe you've seen before the image, going back to ancient Rome, of the anchor and the dolphin. It's, it's something that appears once in a while. It was quite well known in ancient Rome, disappeared for quite a while, and then was revived during the Italian Renaissance by a printer by the name of Aldus Minucius. And what it represented was a classical maxim, a little proverb. And in Latin, that proverb was festina lente, festina lente. What that means in English is make haste slowly, make haste slowly. And so, of course, the, the anchor would be the, the, the slowing and the dolphin would be the making haste. Much of a life with blindness and raising a child with blindness, I believe, could and should be described by this maxim. But 
that's a little bit strange in these days. The whole idea of festina lente, make haste slowly, is not something that is particularly popular. We tend to want things right now. We tend to want things immediately. The reason that Aldous, the printer, started using that maxim and, and adopted it as his own was that he produced these incredible copies of the classics. They were beautifully bound and they were very, very accurate, but they came out a lot later than those produced by other printers. But it was often said throughout Venice, which was the printing capital at that time, wait for Aldous, wait for his versions of the ancient classics. It will be worthwhile to you. And when you're dealing with blindness, there is much that has to be done patiently. I think all of you have probably learned that to some degree or another already. One of the uh, things that I was asked about when talking with Allison and Stacy was uh, what, what they called stimming. And I'm not sure when it started being called that. Maybe it was called that when I was younger, but if so, I wasn't aware of it. But habits, things like rocking, um, eye poking, uh, other, other habits such as that. And uh, I told them that one of my uh, great vices is that I am an eye poker and I'm, I'm not likely to quit. I, 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 have, I tried to quit many times and I wasn't able to uh, completely. But I, I was able to stop for quite a while. And I also now, if I want to touch my eyes, I have pretty well figured out that doing it in private is uh, fine. Doing it when I'm sitting in my kitchen or uh, when I'm working on something and, and happen to be working alone. And if I feel the need to do that while I'm thinking, then I will. But overall, I don't. I don't want to distract people. And we can talk about the practical nature of that in a minute. But one of the things that I want to say is habits like that, uh, rocking, digging at your eyes. And I know digging at your eyes is a bad habit. It is something that I should not do. And yet I do it because apparently I am stubborn and simply refuse to quit at, at the, almost 26 years old. But the thing about breaking a habit like that is it is good to try to break those habits, particularly, you know, if a habit is rocking, there is a good place to rock, and that is in a rocking chair. If the habit is something like eye poking, well, they probably shouldn't be doing that when they were young because it really can break down the tissue around your eyes. If you get older, okay, just please don't do it in a position in a place that distracts people. Um, kind of a do it on your own time sort of an idea. But the thing about all of these habits, a lot of people worry about how am I going to get rid of this? This is, this is not socially acceptable. And a lot of people are told you need, to, you need to make this stop immediately. Well, the newsflash I have to give is habits like that, you're not going to stop them immediately. It's going to be a continual, you know, for me, I would do this and they would say, hands down, Brooke, hands down, Brooke, hands down, Brooke. And I heard that for so many years. And usually I did take my hands down. When I got to be a teenager, I just, I guess that was my way of being defiant, and I sometimes didn't. But it's a slow plotting. Even with something like stimming, you, you want 
to teach them not to do certain things that others find uh, distracting or, or troubling uh, or concerning. It's, it's a good thing to try to work on those, those types of things. But also to, to think that I have to solve this and I have to solve this today is not due pressure to put on yourself. I think the same is true when you go into, uh, I would talk about Braille, but also pre-Braille. Uh, and a lot of the other things that go into really early intervention, like uh, some of the occupational therapy, some of the sound therapy that you have to do. Some days it probably just won't seem to be going well, but Festina Lente, keep pushing, make haste slowly, do as much as you can. And yes, make as much progress as you can, but realize that it takes time and uh, expecting everything to move in leaps and bounds, as you probably already know, is not necessarily reasonable. With Braille, as you probably know, it is common to know at least three variations on the Braille code. I remember when I took my last um, contraction test, if any of you don't yet know what contractions are, they are uh, our, our shorthand, if you will. It's a quite a wonderful invention. And I had to be fluent in those. And I remember I took uh, my last test on that when I was six years old. It, it was sort of like sort of like I graduated from basic Braille because I was basically fluent in three codes of it. That was grade one Braille, which is standard letter for letter uh, uh, Braille, just like we see in the print alphabet. It's probably uh, what you see in most of the basic Braille books still today. The second was grade two Braille. I think now they, they use unified English Braille, um, which I have been thoroughly non-compliant with since it came into place. But that is uh, contracted Braille, which has a lot of the shortcuts and shorthands that we uh, find so helpful. And then, of course, those are the two literary codes. Nemeth is the third, and that is the math code. And so it is... Uh, good to to expect a child to be proficient in that by the time they're about six or seven years old. That is, is thoroughly normal. But an objection that a lot of people have brought up lately is that's so unfair. Isn't that, that that's so much harder than what most students have to do? Well, maybe it is, but if so, all the better. If we're blind, and, and yes, we have a lot of different challenges, but we should be proud of the fact that we've had to work harder and learn these codes of Braille uh, by that point. That's something to be proud of. It's not something to be bitter about. It's not something to be annoyed about. It's something to be proud of. Hey, we, I, I, knew, I knew three different codes by the time I was six. Of course, I've got a good mind. Of course, I've got a good memory. We should be some of the best and the brightest because of how this works, because of how we learn Braille, particularly when we have the advantage of being born blind rather than losing our sight and having to adapt to that. It is such an advantage. But there will be days, and everyone who ever knew me when I was young can attest to this, when, oh my goodness, trying to make them read is like pulling teeth. And I know it was that way with me. And oftentimes I didn't want to read with both hands. No, I would just take my one left index finger and try to read like that. 
And uh, that is still my most literate finger because I didn't read as much with both hands when I was younger as I could have. I, I tended to uh, do better when I was older and I don't have a, a problem, but I notice things like that now. But fighting that, sometimes it does feel like fighting a battle, but persisting in continuing the, the practice of reading, saying, no, you, you do have to read. No, this is important. No, this is important to learn. It may feel very slow to you and to your child at times, but once again, festina lente, you're making haste slowly. It is a plotting journey that takes years, even when you start early. And sometimes really wonderful progress is made. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I often compare what we do in Braille uh, to, and we still do this at the school where I teach, um, where sighted kids learn cursive as well as print. And some of them actually learn cursive first. I think of Braille as being sort of like that because you know we don't have cursive Braille. We don't have a way to make Braille fancy. But we do have variations, all of which are completely essential. Technology can do a lot of things, but if you can't actually read a page and know what it says, rather than simply having a, a voice read it to you, I'm grateful for screen readers, but to be functionally illiterate is not an option. It is very easy to be lied to, manipulated, deceived when that is allowed to happen. Also, in terms of writing, it's very hard to learn to write well when you don't read well. And the, the really intimate familiarity that you have to have with words, that can't be grasped by the ear alone. Even though I'm an extremely auditory learner, that's something I would say. It's important to push that from a very young age. And so learning those different codes is not so different than having to learn cursive as some of you probably did, having to learn some of those variations. And it's, as I said, it's just a part of life. It's not something to get worked up about. It's just the language that we happen to use and it's what we have to do. Uh, being able to do math, you have to be able to line up a problem and you have to use a Perkins Braille writer to do that. A computer can calculate things for you, but it can't, let you see things one character at a time, as in, okay, five is down here times three, you know, you've got a 23 up there and it won't let you do that. It will, it will do a lot of things for you, but in terms of teaching you how to work it out, again, technology really can't do that. You have to be able to lay it out on paper. And math is hard enough, um, when you do that, but I have to say, I, I shudder to think what it would have been like had I tried to do it without knowing Braille. And so again, it is at times very frustrating. It at times seems hard. Maybe at times it seems unfair, but we just continue to make haste slowly. I think that one of the really wonderful elements of being blind actually is the fact that technology can't do absolutely everything for us. 
and I haven't kept all that up on technology. I mean, I, I will occasionally look into something every couple of years, but generally when I have uh, what I have works. And so I don't try to replace it or, or look into the latest, greatest techno, whatever, whenever it comes out. But I would say that as a general rule, technology for the blind tends to be anywhere from five to 15 years behind. And it depends on what you're talking about. Um, and if it's not behind in one area, it will be behind in another. I, I remember getting a, a Braille tablet a few years ago, and it drove me halfway up the wall because I could do all kinds of stuff on it. But the word processor was perfectly dreadful. I mean, it, it just completely mangled some of my papers in graduate school uh, because the word processor was so slow with all the internet capacity that they gave it, the word processor just did not work well and it couldn't keep up with how fast I typed. But there is a real blessing in that because this particular time in history is one in which I think we are used to getting everything instantly. Well, whenever I get a new piece of technology and it has been this way since I was young, I just expect it probably won't work right for me for at least the first week, maybe the first three weeks. I just have to sit arguing with it for hours and then eventually I, I might get it to work. But that cultivates a lot of patience. It cultivates not expecting everything to be at your fingertips. And that is something that I think does need to be taught to every blind child is that you do have to be patient. That is true of everyone and I wish everyone was taught that, but especially those of us who can't see because things will simply never be at our fingertips in quite the same way. And that's okay. The thing about being braille readers, the thing about being blind overall, the way I see it, we are part of something beautiful. We are part of a great legacy. And I know that's a strange way of thinking about it, but Consider what it would mean if you taught Braille that way. It says, do you realize what an important history, what a noble history you're part of? That, that Louis Braille just came up with this because he was trying to read raised print. And he said, this is, this is really dumb. I, I can't hardly tell what this says. This is not working. Surely there's a better way. And Louis Braille learned from uh, French military officers who came to the School for the Blind where he went, heard about a code that they used in the dark and said, well, I'll appropriate that. I will adapt that for the blind and it'll be wonderful. And I mean, it took forever, but he did it. And it was improved upon and improved upon. There's actually a great book on the history of Braille in this country. I cannot remember the author's name right now, but it's called The War of the Dots. And it's kind of comical because you had a lot of sighted people in rooms yelling at each other about precisely what Braille for blind people should look like uh, for, for quite a while. But Braille in and of itself, I mean, it is a written language and it has a legacy. There are fewer and fewer literate blind people today. And so uh, I actually did some manual transcription when I was in college. I, I was interning for uh, the upper room, some of you may be familiar with in Nashville, it's a Methodist ministry. And I was working for them and I, I transcribed 
something like 350 letters on the Perkins Brailler. And I have to say, I felt such a sense of history and such, such a sense of pride having done that because I felt that I was carrying on a legacy. A lot of people had done that before me. Not many people will be likely to transcribe that much after me because of all of the embossers and the braille printers. And, and, and those are wonderful, wonderful technologies. But we who are blind are part of a great legacy. And it's something to be proud of, not something that has to be in your face or uh, I'm not talking, you know, we're blind and we're proud or something like that. It's, it's nothing like that. It's just being grateful for what has been handed down to us by our forefathers, by those who have gone before us. And so I think the ability to see things that way is so important. And that's why I say it's, it's good that technology won't probably meet our every single whim because we can still maintain something of a legacy. And one of the things that I really harp on and, and my students can all see and something that I make them do because I fear that this is becoming lost as well is a lot of memorization. I usually make them memorize at least one song per semester and I don't let them look at any printed materials. I actually once made a choir of like 20 people between four and 13 years old. They could all see, it was a couple of years ago, but I made them memorize 14 pieces for a Christmas Eve service and I didn't let them look at a print page once. And I made them learn everything by ear. And there is a really wonderful, he's, he passed away this past year, uh, a literary critic and scholar by the name of George Steiner. Uh, his parents fled the Holocaust uh, when it came to France and uh, he was a, a young boy at that time. And he studied a number of different fields, but one of the things he often talked about was the importance of learning by heart. When you have learned something by heart, it cannot be taken away from you. And that is something that as a blind musician, particularly because I don't primarily play the piano, I play the guitar, I play the banjo, I, I just picked up the fiddle, very, very recently, I, I occasionally play the piano, but that's all very tactile. And so when I'm playing, I'd better know the words because I can't read the braille at the same time. My hands are rather occupied. And I suppose I could try to read with my toes, but well, that would be a whole nother awkward scenario that I don't think would be a very good idea. So learning by heart, having a really prolific memory whether you're blind or not, that takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of repetition. There's another classical maxim, repetitio motor memoriae, where repetition is the mother of memory. And I think the, the encouraging of your children to do that, especially beginning when they're young, when they start to be able to talk, encouraging them to memorize that which they hear, encouraging them to, to commit things to memory, whether it's poetry, whether it's music, whether it's uh, verses of, of scripture, I mean, regardless of what it is, the ability to have things in your head and ultimately in your heart. For one thing, it does build your character and no one can take it away from you. But for another, you have a very strong muscle in your memory, which most people don't have anymore. The concerns about memory go all the way back to Socrates and Plato. They express concerns that writing would weaken memory. I mean, and it did, but it was certainly worth it, in my opinion. But 
now I think it is far easier than ever to say, oh, I'll, I'll look it up. Oh, I'll go back. I'll Google it. And that is something that I think we who are blind, our advantage truly is that we can be better than that. We don't have to do that all the time. We can have a lot of information stored in there. We don't have to be dependent on whatever the next high-tech whatever is. And I know technology can be a controversial subject and I'm not trying to go there, but I'm just saying that we don't have to be dependent on any artificial source like that. We have, we have our minds and we are already in a position to discipline them for right and good use. And so that is, is another advantage. And, and I think one of the reasons it's so essential to understand being blind as in some ways being the bearer of a legacy that we can be grateful for. A lot of blind people have memorized large multiple books of the Bible, have done some really remarkable feats of memory. I've never done anything like that. But I do have to memorize a lot, and I do push my students to do the same. And I encourage everyone I know to try to really stretch their memory and, and do that. But for blind people in particular, that is a skill we can hone in a way that a lot of sighted people simply won't hone anymore. The, I think one of the concerns that people have is... Uh, What about inspiration? What about entertainment? And of course, what about a social life? One of the really remarkable things I have noticed as a blind adult is that because I don't have to see all of the concrete things around me, I still get to revel in people's descriptions of things. And maybe you realize this, maybe you don't, but when you describe things, you use a lot of metaphor. You, you think very analogically. And that's a beautiful thing. And so when a child is blind, his or her imagination should be cultivated. It's, it's another reason why I talk about being a lover of words. And I, I believe both braille books, audio books, reading aloud, uh, to them, with them, all of that. It's so important because to have that childlike imagination, it has really done wonders for me, particularly because I'm a songwriter, I'm a musician uh, that has been important to the course of my life. But wonders can be hard to find in these times and in these days. And when we feel like we're living in an information age and there are facts that can explain everything, everything is, uh, is easily summarized, is easily explained. Well, there are a lot of things and a lot of ideas that don't work like that. And when a person is blind, he or she has the chance to never fully lose that sense of, of wonder and of mystery at what the world is and at elements of beauty that we can't grasp. We don't have to lose our vivid imaginations. That's maybe one of the most remarkable things that I have noticed in being blind. It's one of the things that I'm most grateful for. If that interests you, um, and I actually sent this 
to you guys, uh, Allison and Stacy. You guys might be able to find it because I, I cannot remember the title off the top of my head right now. But there was a gentleman in the French Resistance. He founded the French Resistance in World War II, Young People's uh, French Resistance. He was blind, and his name was Jacques Lusseret. And he wrote a book, uh, an autobiography. And he talked about many things, um, his incarceration in a concentration camp, but, uh, his work in the resistance movement. But he spoke of the wonder that comes of being blind. He had actually lost his sight. But he talks about how when he would frantically look for something, be feeling around all over the place for it, he couldn't find it. And then when he would just relax and kind of let it come to him, it's almost as if it would come to him. And I'm not sure if I would describe it exactly like that, but I know what he means. I've experienced that wonder as well. In, in being blind and simply realizing that I will find what I need to find and, and just allowing myself to not freak out, not panic. And there's something about that. Things do have a way of coming to you. And I don't really know how to explain that, but it's that kind of wonder, that kind of gratitude that I speak of. But I hope I don't care what you call it. You can call it a disability. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with handicap. I don't, I don't think differently able rolls off the tongue very well. If you want to call it that, I think that works. But whatever it is that you call it, I think it's important that, that your child realize they have been given a gift. I found that people overall don't uh, have anything wrong with you being blind. Some people might be a little uncomfortable, but it's easy enough to break the ice. Some people actually have a problem with you because you're blind. I mean, I, I worked with someone like that in my last job and it was unfortunate, but I didn't take it personally because this particular individual was a jerk to everyone, whether they were blind or not. And so the idea of not respecting a blind person, I didn't really take that personally. It was just, oh, well, I'm another person he doesn't respect. It's unfortunate. I did tell him several times, anyone but me would have sued you, but I wouldn't do that. Um, and I would call him out on it. But I think it's just important to to be able to understand that many, many wonderful things come with blindness, to teach your children not to be bitter about it, to worry that there's something wrong with them. It's, it's different. And yeah, there are some things that you can't do. And sometimes that's kind of a bummer uh, when you can't jump in your car and drive somewhere, uh, particularly if, if you've been stuck somewhere for a few days, bad weather or, or quarantine or whatever, it's kind of like, well, this is a bummer. But it is more than worth it. It comes with its challenges just as everything else in life does. And as I said, most people, particularly if you're kind, friendly and courteous, they, they won't have a problem uh, with, with blindness. One of the last things I would say is uh, what helped me so immensely. I was just talking with my mother about this the other day, is that uh, I came from two very strong-willed Parents, both my mother and my father were that way, and I am that way. I was very blunt, even as a young kid. And a lot of people were surprised that my mother was okay with that. 
and she would always call me out if she felt that I was not courteous, if I was out of line. But she never told me that I shouldn't be strong. She never tried to break that spirit. She said, that strong, stubborn, determined, opinionated spirit is what will save her. She said it will save her from someone taking advantage of her sexually, physically, emotionally, or socially in college. It is what will allow her to become the woman she will be. It is what will allow her uh, to work in the fields in which she will work. And it was. A lot of blind people are taught, don't rock the boat. I, I even know of some parents who will, will they're, they're blind, even teenager or, or young uh, child would be speaking and they'll just cover their mouth. Um, don't ever do that. Encourage them to be strong. Have challenging conversation with, with, with your child who is blind. Encourage him or her to have opinions and to stand up for them. You know, it's often said, I mean, it's maybe an overused cliche, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. That is certainly true of the blind. So don't allow timidity. Don't allow just sort of the shy, oh, teach them how to speak up, teach them how to project, teach them how to assert themselves. As I said, you also want to teach them courtesy and graciousness that is vital. But the fact is that people often tell me that they're shocked by the deep respect that I show. That is because of the strength of character I was able to build. That is because I'm not simply passively doing what I'm told. But I, as a woman with free will, who, who desires uh, to work under someone, to do what they are telling me to do, I am loyal to a person because I wish to be, and I know fully what I'm doing. I'm not simply acting out of fear. And so teach them courage. Teach them to be their own man or woman. Teach them to stand teach them not to be afraid. And also, as they get older, it's important to teach them how to intimidate someone with their voice. If someone wants to come after you, you probably should be able to say, if you don't get your hands off me, I swear I will put you in the hospital. And if a blind kid can't do that, that could be a problem. So teach them, teach them how to use their voice, their other senses, Teach them to be their own person. I think of all the advice I could give, that would probably be the most important. And remember that it is often far more a plod than it is a sprint. Festina lente. Make haste. Slowly. Thank you, Brooke. That was so wonderful. This is Allison. Um, I do have a couple of questions that came to me. The first was um, you talked about being Braille proficient at age six. Were you yes. in public school? Was that something that you happened to grow up in a really um, great school system that made sure of that? Or was it something your mom advocated for? Or why do you think that was? Um, my mother ended up, she wanted to put me uh, in school because I had some, uh, some separation anxiety from her when I was three or four. And uh, they came to interview me. She wanted to put me in a, uh, a Montessori school where my sister was. 
And um, the district came to interview me and they said, oh, no, she, she doesn't need to go to pre-K. She's she's too smart. She's qualified. That's just no. And my mom sued and said, that's discrimination. And she didn't win. Um, I had a one braille teacher who, who was with the district. California is a, they've got some great programs, but in terms of early intervention, in terms of stuff like that, it's a real nightmare. I, I was born in Missouri. There was a lot of help and support there. But in California, it was just a lot harder, particularly um, if you weren't really remedial. They, they didn't want to deal with you, apparently. So just do that. Well, I went then to Catholic school, uh, beginning in kindergarten. But my Braille teacher continued to come. I believe that she and my Braille for many, many years actually did not... I think they did some of it off the books because it was a Catholic school and in California, they, they didn't like that, of course. And so they just said, we, we don't care anyway. And so she would come and overwrite my work and administer tests. And um, she, she ensured that uh, I wasn't taking any shortcuts. Her name was, was Micah. Uh, she just retired recently out in California, um, but truly remarkable. And, I thank her every time I talk to her. Thank you. Um, and then the other question was um, for parents of children who have sight or teachers of children who have sight, how can those kids support kids like Finn or like Brooke or like Nathaniel who don't have sight through play or in the classroom? Are there ways to encourage social uh, interactions that you recommend? Mainly just, just be friendly to be and and realize that they're just like you just their eyes don't work so good but they're just like you i think that way of explaining it and um you know if they want help they'll ask for it and and if not that's okay too they still probably want a friend because everyone wants a friend or friends um something that you can do is uh maybe some of you guys have heard about this it's more like uh, there's different names for it, I think, depending on grade levels. I mean, it's sort of like sensitivity training. I, I just like that term because it has more of an HR quality. Um, but you can have some awareness uh, days and they're really fun. So like, let's say you go into a school and um, you you have students do tasks with their eyes closed. Uh, you have them identify something merely by, by smell, you know, a candle or something. Um, you have them do different things with, with their ears. Play. You know, you, you have them uh, uh, practice certain things um, without one of their senses. And in particular, some blindness. Uh, some great things that you can do. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen those, um, those different Braille tactiles. And there's a lot of different types of them. But a few years the youth group, and um, I was in Missouri at the time. And so we came up to... Uh, Bibles International, which is not far from there, they they don't braille a lot on sight, but in terms of working with people and getting a lot of them out, they get a, a, a huge amount of the Lutherans out in, uh, they're all over the country, but Lutheran Braille Workers is another uh, good resource if you ever want a Braille Bible or something. Um, anyway, I took them up there, and then I took them through some things of, okay, here's how to identify Braille. And these tactiles, they were like big squishy ones. I still have them somewhere. I got them off of Amazon, but they had braille dots and they were they were kind of big, like you might see in pre-braille. And 
you actually had the print and it was raised on them too. And it was, you know, all in and they um, made out of some kind of fabric. And those are really cool for little kids. I found those really helpful for showing them Braille. Also the classic uh, pre-Braille technique, which I think is great to show kids if you want to show them what the Braille dots are and, and what the alphabet is, just get a muffin pan and, you know, tennis balls or golf call, uh, golf balls, or you can get an egg carton and uh, set up, you know, a letter in there. They can look at one letter at a time and it's on that bigger scale. Uh-oh, Brooke, I think we're losing you. Oh, no. <laughs> I did post um, one item in the chat she mentioned from the from Jock. Mm -hmm. I won't say his last name correctly, but it's there was light. You're um, back. You were frozen for a moment. Oh, I'm sorry. My phone freaked out for some reason. And there was light. Yes. Thank you for looking that up. I put that in the chat for everyone. So. Oh, fantastic. That is an incredible book to read. I mean, for anyone, I, it's so beautiful and, you know, everyone might get something different out of it, but in terms of his, his sections on blindness and kind of the, the wonder that he found there. Oh, I mean, it, it's enough to bring you to tears. Uh, does anyone else have any questions? Feel free to put them in the chat. And if not, we'll let Brooke maybe entertain us with a song. Or if you want to ask something out loud, you can too. Yes, feel free. We have a small group. So feel free to just take yourself off mute and ask a question. Or comment or anything. Yeah. Brooke, I'll go ahead and ask something. I don't remember. I don't think we um, talked about this, but um, I found that you know, a lot of, it's like there are different trains of thought, obviously. And one that I feel like, you know, some people adopt, I don't think out of any, um, you know, meaning harm or anything, but whether it's like with sensory loss or hearing loss, um, this need to fix, you know, like we need to give this young child side. Okay. Could you say that again? That, I, I think it went away for a moment. I am. So oh, sorry, Brooke. Um, yeah, just that um, there seems to be kind of a train of thought of, you know, if a child has vision loss or if a child has hearing loss, you know, to, to fix that as opposed to maybe embracing the other senses that are intact. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wondered if, you know, in, in your early life, did, did you encounter, did your mom encounter you know, uh, I guess people, well-meaning people trying to, to fix as opposed to embracing, you know, what you did have available. Well, we did. And, and I think that there is, there is a middle ground as well. So um, when I was first born, I only had a pocket of light. So my head was like this. And apparently I wasn't sitting up straight. Well, one of the things that happened was uh, we found an acupuncture doctor and within a couple of months of seeing him, I got full light perception and I was sitting up straight by then. And I have had 
if I do say so myself, quite good posture ever since that time. And he did really help. And in terms of having full light, you know, that, that helped me a lot functionally speaking, because when you have a pocket of light like that, it's really hard to, um, to teach a child to set up, you know, you can have neck problems, things like that. And so we were very open to treating certain things. I have actually met, there are scientists who are working on genetic uh, therapy for uh, some of these congenital conditions. And uh, I've met some of them and, and uh, some of them I really, really liked. Some of them I was kind of like, oh, okay, I, I don't, I don't want to be in your lab again. Um, and, and that was just through, I, I have traveled a lot and I've had a lot of connections over the years um, uh, through, through my father, through a lot of different people. But one of the things that we ran into, I helped with some of the fundraising for some of their work. I would uh, do gigs for them sometimes uh, as a teenager and um, would, would entertain and so forth. But we would run into these families that were so pushy and they'd say, oh, I want my son to be the first one to get this. I, and my mom would always say, you know what, if Brooke wants a cure, she can have it, but I would never force her to like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't, I, I'm telling him he's whether he would want it or not, he's having it, he's, we're going to fix this. And I did tell my mom, I don't think I would desire it. I understand why some would, particularly those who have lost their sight. I do ache for those who have lost it and who missed it. And those who want it, I don't think there's any shame in that. You know, in the deaf community, there's some of this, and they have more of a, of a community. They tend to be more of uh, uh, hearing impaired people in the same place. But sometimes it's kind of like someone's ostracized because they get a, uh, a cochlear implant or something. I think that's ridiculous. If someone desires to do that, I have no problem with that. But I also don't have a problem with someone desiring not to. I mean, I just consider it that if I all of a sudden went sighted, it'd be like if you all of a sudden went blind and that would be quite terrifying. Uh, I don't doubt some good could come from it, but it's just not something that I, that I desire. I think it's just really good to kind of be really laid back and moderate in those areas. But one thing I would say that concerned me was these parents were, oh, I would want my kid to be the first to have this. My mom was like, um, that's terrifying. You want your kid to basically be a lab rat? I mean, why would you, why would you desire that? You don't know what could go wrong. Uh, in the early, early, early trials. I mean, and, and also, why wouldn't you give them a choice? It's their life. It's their eyes. Um, so I would say I'm kind of a laid back moderate on it. I know where I stand and I know what I want. And I don't have the desire to change that. But I understand why some do. And I don't have a problem with it. Thank you so much for doing this tonight, Brooke. This has been really, really great. Would you mind um, playing a song for us? Not at all. Let's see here. This is, uh, and Allison and Stacy have already heard this song, but I think it is appropriate for this first meeting. Um, it is perhaps the most personal song I've ever written, and it is about blindness. Uh, but it's, it's about blindness only in so much as it is about a facet of that experience and of that imagination I was telling you about, that wonder I was telling you about. I think this perhaps captures that better uh, than most other things that I've written. 
And what you'll also find is that in many ways, it's not, it's, it's personal, but it's, it's a tribute to a lot of other people. I think that's important. When you're dealing with anything with a blind uh, child that, that might be difficult, something like stimming, for example, one of the things that I think I found the most helpful is it, it's not saying that's not socially acceptable because a contrary personality such as mine probably doesn't care. But saying it is distracting people, it is disturbing people, it is confusing people. That I care about. I don't want to do that. I don't want to trouble someone by what I'm doing. I mean, it's, it's unintentional, but I don't wish to do that. I don't wish to be distracting. And when it comes to living blindness well, a big part of it is making sure that you have them doing things for other people, that it's not just people helping them, but also having them think of what they can do to serve other people in their blindness, in that situation, because there are innumerable things that can be done. And so even in writing a song about it, I was gratified that it wasn't just a bunch of, this is how I feel and this is just me. It's telling a story and really it tells the stories of three other people. And that was my intent when I wrote this. Tony sang a song called Chasing Down the Wind about him and his faithful Ford gone where they'd never been. They ran wild and free till it broke down and Tony lost his sight. Well, I'm blind too, and as he sang, I wished my cane could fly. My sister Kristen got a car the day she turned 16. Our folks would fight and she would leave, but never without me. When she moved off to college, you could say I lost my ride. But as I went home without her, I wished my cane could fly. If only I could fly away on this white red tipped cane. I bet I could leave behind the pain And somehow I would always know the way My friend Jenny lives alone somewhere in Alabama She's blind too but unlike me has no one to start a new life, but 
But as she told me all her dreams, we wished our canes could fly. If only I could fly away on this white red tint cane. I bet I could help heal somebody's pain. And somehow I would always know the way. When I close my eyes at night, I have no fantasies of sight. All in the dream world I see is this old cane in me flying free. If only I could fly away on the white red tipped cane. I bet I could leave behind the pain and somehow I would always know the way. Oh, I bet I could help heal somebody's pain. And somehow I would always know the way. Thank you, Brooke. You moved me to tears a second time with that song. I love it so much. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, I think that does it for tonight. If no one has any other questions for Brooke, but if anyone does want to follow up and ask questions later, please feel free to reach out to myself or Stacy. Um, okay. You can reach out to me too. Um, my email is Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E, last name Pernice, P-E-R-N-I-C-E at gmail.com. Perfect. I'll put it in the chat. Fantastic. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, and like I said, we recorded this, so we will be posting it for anyone who wants to see it again later or share it with uh, friends or family or anyone working with um, children who may be blind or visually impaired. Brooke is an inspiration. Mm -hmm. so thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.